Amen. What a word to sing together. Christ alone. Nothing else. The blood of Christ. Amen. Amen. We get to do something cool today that we don't get to do every week. Today, we get to celebrate the gospel through the word, through our song. And then we're also going to celebrate the gospel through the ordinances by taking communion together and celebrating baptism together. That's pretty insane. What a joy. I am stoked for this. I'm glad you guys are here. We're going to be continuing our series in Acts today. So uh, if you haven't been with us, if you're visiting today, don't worry. It's going to be good. I promise. I'll do well. I don't promise. But we're going to try. So, uh, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles and turn them over to Acts 21, we're actually going to look at a really long narrative today, a single narrative, and so we're going to kind of work through it, looking through different chunks at a time. But as, as you guys are kind of turning there, I'll, I'll kind of open us with this thought. Has anyone, has anyone heard of Pascal's Wager before? Anyone remember back to, like, Philosophy 101 in their undergrad, Pascal's Wager? This is, uh, this is a, a, a kind of famous question posed in Christian philosophy by Blaise Pascal. It's basically this idea that you should become a Christian because the odds are just in your favor. That's, that's, that's his, basic, his basic argument. So he goes, look, if you choose to follow Christ with your life and you're wrong, by the time you figure out, you won't care. But if you choose to reject Christ and you're wrong, by the time you find out, it will have devastating, insane consequences, right? That's, that's kind of the basic premise of it. Now I have this atheist agnostic friend, is a good buddy of mine, and, and he, he would bring this one up to me relatively often. This, this was kind of, one of his, um, kind of one of his hobby horses, and the reason is because he actually looked at this idea of Pascal's Wager and said, That's, that was actually evidence for him against following Christ. It actually pushed him farther away from the church, and the reason he gave was this, because really quick, I actually think he had the right read on this. I think, I think he actually had some wisdom on this. What he basically said is, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, if you follow Christ and you're wrong, you will, by the time you find out, it won't matter. But the, the, the Christian faith demands so much of its adherence that you will have taken your only life, your finite life, the only amount of time you have here on this earth, and you will have spent it on others. You will have lived your whole life Giving sacrificially, loving your enemy, doing all these things that Christian ethics hold up, holds up as good, instead of pouring your finite, limited energy into your own success and happiness. And so from his point of view, this kind of really materialistic point of view, right, he's going, I've only got the years I've got. I can't waste them on others. I've got to waste them on myself. He's only got what I've got. You know, this is essentially hedonism, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But here's the thing. In a materialistic worldview, that's right. Because the Christian worldview, the, the, the Christianity of Jesus of the scriptures, really does ask a lot of you. It's a really big ask. And I do think there's actually some wisdom in what my buddy's saying, right? I mean, Paul himself said in the letter to the Corinthians, if, if it's only for this life that we hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied. Christianity makes a wonderful worldview because it's true. But it makes a terrible philosophy. If it's just your self-help philosophy, there are way better options. It makes a wonderful thing to dedicate your life to because it represents reality. It's a terrible hobby terrible thing to engage in casually to try and make your life better. Because Christ asks a lot of you. So my bud looks at this, looks at Christianity, looks at the claims of the Bible, and listen, this guy is not like some mean, angry, divisive, like just dismissing all religion. This is a guy who's actually thought long and hard about this. Who in his mind, he goes, Christianity makes these really extravagant claims really big, supernaturalistic claims about reality. And it asks a ton of you. It asks you to give your whole life, not for yourself, but for others. So if, that's, if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to be all in on that, then the evidence for it better be just as extravagant 
as the claims it's making and what it's asking of me. And so he looks at it and investigates and reads and studies and goes on YouTube and goes, I don't think the evidence is extraordinary enough to back up claims that are that extraordinary. And he walks away. And here's the thing, guys. That's, that's this dude walking through a logical, reasonable exercise, right? The kind of thing where if you're in this space, you probably don't agree with him. Hopefully. But you can look at it and go, I get how someone could get there. I understand that process. And maybe that even taps into some of your own doubts and the stuff you wrestle with, right? So what do you, what do, you do with this? How do you get there? Because I agree with my bud that Pascal doesn't cut. You can't just say, well, just play the odds, man. That's not enough. That's not enough. You should really give your life, give your soul, give your person completely over to something as big as what this asks of you. And by the way, if, some, if that was someone's mindset, I don't actually know if Christ is the Messiah, but I ran the odds and I figured this is my best shot. It's not exactly what we would call genuine faith, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I'm not exactly going to sign that guy up for the deacon team. Uh, although, I don't know, that depends on how desperate we are. <laughs> so what do you do? How do you get there? How do you, how do you bridge that gap? That's exactly what we're going to talk about today. In a weird way, because we're reading this really long narrative text about Paul getting arrested and beaten up. But this is where we're going today, because... What the New Testament teaches us, and really specifically what Acts teaches us, is that the evidence for the reality of Christianity is you and I. The evidence for the truth, the Christian worldview, is the Christian. It's an intense thing. But stick with me on this, guys. I think, I think this is actually a beautiful thing. You see, as Christ loves you, it changes your very heart. Not only will the truth of the gospel become more evident to you, right? But as, as we'll see, Satan himself, the curse itself, is defeated by the truth of the gospel in the witness of the raptured hearts of the church of Jesus. There's something about the fact that the gospel actually works. That it actually changes you and I's hearts. That it turns selfish, sinful us away from ourselves and away from hedonism and away from the pleasures of this world and toward the things of God that actually shows the weightiness, the truth, the power of the gospel. Amen? So, what we're going to say today is essentially this. We bear witness, to use the biblical language, or give evidence to the reality of the gospel of Jesus with our very lives, our very hearts, what an amazing privilege that is. And BT Dub, what a weighty call that is. So, let's pray together and we'll jump into this. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the gift of this family. Thank you for the gift of your kingdom and what you're doing. God, bringing newness of life, bringing life where there was death. Lord, we love you. You alone. That's how we stand. You are so good, Jesus. Speak to us through your word. Speak to us through this gathering today. Lord, we ask just as humbly as we can that, that you would make yourself known in this space. God, give us open ears, open eyes, tender, humble hearts to hear from you, receive from you. And let us leave this place today just more convicted in you, more dependent on you. And above all else, Lord, having met with you and heard from you. We love you, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So we're jumping into a narrative we've been walking through. So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, this is overview. If you're visiting today, this is new. So we're in Acts. We've been going through the book of Acts. And Acts basically tells the story of how the church advances immediately following Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven. So the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are kind of two parts of the same thing, written by the same author. Luke tells the story of Jesus' 
life, his mission, his work, his death, and his resurrection, Acts picks up immediately at the resurrection of Jesus when he ascends into heaven and then follows the story of the early church. And follows the story of the early church really through two lenses. Through the church in Jerusalem as led by the Apostle Peter and then through the global Gentile church as led by the Apostle Paul. So the first nine, ten chapters of Acts really stick close to home and show how the Jerusalem church, the Jewish church, grew under the leadership of the apostles and specifically Peter. And then we were going about the conversion of a Jewish rabbi named Saul who was persecuting the church. And God ends up calling him to leave Jerusalem and take the gospel to the non-Jewish world in the Roman Empire. And essentially, in Acts 12 or so through where we are in Acts 21... What we follow is the Apostle Paul making three massive journeys across the Roman Empire. If you look at a map of the Mediterranean Sea, he moves out of what we call Palestine, throughout what we call Turkey, throughout what we call Greece, planting churches, sharing the gospel. He does this over the course of 25 years, kind of making these journeys into Rome and back, and into Rome and back. And last week in our text, we we followed Paul as he made his final journey back to Jerusalem, ending out his third missionary journey. What happened was, as he was on this third journey, he felt a leading through the Holy Spirit that God was calling him to preach the gospel specifically in the city of Rome. And he had no clue how the heck he was going to get there. He didn't really know anyone there. He didn't really have connections there. But he felt the Holy Spirit saying, prepare, I'm taking you to preach the gospel to Rome, but you need to go to Jerusalem first. Which is kind of opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of the Roman world. But Paul says yes, He journeys and makes his way back to Jerusalem. As he's making this trip back to Jerusalem, stopping by all the churches he's planted and loved and served for the last several decades, these churches keep telling him, hey, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's going to be terrible for you there. You're going to get beaten up. You're going to get persecuted. You're going to get arrested. You might get killed. And the whole time Paul's like, yeah, probably, but I really think God's telling me to go to Jerusalem and then go to Rome, so I just have to say yes. And he makes his way, and our text ended last week as him and his buddies rolled up into Jerusalem. So where we're picking up today is in the moment when he first comes into the city and makes contact with what we'll call the mother church, the Jerusalem church. Now, you need to know there's a little bit of tension here. If you don't know some of the historical context here, that's that's fine. There's a little bit of tension here because remember, Christianity was birthed out of first century Judaism. And just in case you don't have a whole bunch of knowledge on first century Judaism just on tap, I'll go ahead and get us uh, up to speed here. You know, as Paul was traveling around preaching the gospel to Gentiles, to non-Jews around the Roman world, it was actually creating a ton of tension because first century Judaism was really insular. They didn't like spending time with non-Jews. And so as the Jerusalem church has realized if God is saving not just Jewish people, but everyone, it was actually a really hard hill for them to get over. There was a tension that existed throughout the whole book of Acts. They had a whole church council over it where they brought in Paul and some of the leaders from a church called Antioch and argued over whether or not God could actually save non-Jewish people. Good news for most of us. They eventually landed on yes, you can. So, uh, but, but as Paul is arriving here back in Jerusalem, There is some tension. He hasn't been here in probably 15 years. And there are lots of rumors about Paul being spread throughout Jerusalem. We're going to see that. So in chapter 21, starting in verse 17, I'm going to read this chunk to us. Now when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related to them one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. This is our first scene today. We're going to see this scene broken up into kind of three different, or three different scenes in this story. Paul with the Jerusalem church, Paul with the Jerusalem Jews, and then Paul with the Jerusalem Romans. So in this first scene with the church, what we see with Paul is that immediately they're like, bro, we're so stoked you're here. God's doing awesome things. Just so you know, it's pretty bad for you here. Like, things have been said. And you have to look at the tension here. What they're saying is, look, 
The Jerusalem church has grown a ton. Thousands of people. And they're pretty much exclusively Jewish converts. Jewish converts, and we know this from church history, a large chunk of them came from what was called the Assyrian community in Palestine at that time. These were some of the most conservative Jews there were who called for a really radical return to observance to the Torah law, the first five books of the Old Testament. So these guys have a really hard time getting over the hill that God is actually saving all people from all places. And so James, the brother of Jesus, who's serving as kind of the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem right now, is like, look, man, we're glad you're here. We're so stoked about the testimony. How amazing is that? God saving people all over the world. This is cool. But you need to know we have some really conservative Jewish Christians here. And they've heard some stuff about you. And what they've heard, you'll notice, notice the tension here. They're not actually concerned at this point that God is bringing the Gentiles into the kingdom. Remember, James and the apostles sat in the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, and they, through the leading of the Spirit, said, yes, obviously God is saving all peoples, and we don't expect Gentiles to pretend they're Jews. The only things they actually asked the Gentiles to do, they gave them a couple specific rules that were connected to Roman idol worship. They said, hey, make sure that you Gentile Christians living amongst the world, that you are going above and beyond to show your neighbors and your brothers and sisters that you don't follow the ways of Rome, but you follow the ways of Christ. So there's a couple rules about what kind of meat they eat. The only restrictions they put on the Gentile Christians. They have no expectation of the Gentile Christians pretending they're Jewish. What they're concerned about is they've heard rumors that Paul's going around telling all the diaspora Jews, the Jews outside of Palestine and the Roman Empire, that they shouldn't follow the Torah laws, that they shouldn't observe Jewish culture. Now, here's what's interesting about that. There's a rub here, because the reality is they can ignore the Jewish customs if they want to. That's the reality of the gospel, right? Like God is doing a new thing, a new covenant. They are no longer bound to those things. And by the way, as Paul says in several of his letters, and we know from church history, They're not bound in what kind of meat they eat either. These rules they're setting up are actually, like, to us, especially outside the the context, they just seem really arbitrary. But what's actually going on here is a deep and abiding concern for church unity when you have varying levels of spiritual maturity. Right? Paul actually really digs into this when he talks about the rules that were put on Gentile Christians about what meat they can or can't eat. You can read about this in Romans and 1 Corinthians and in Galatians. Paul basically says, look, meat's meat's meat. It doesn't really matter. But if it's causing your brother or sister to struggle, if their immaturity creates an environment where you're doing that harms their faith, well, then you should joyfully, (laughs) gladly give up the freedom you have to protect your brother and sister because unity with your brothers and sisters is way more important than you just putting your foot down on your preferences and your freedoms. Right? So this is kind of the rub here. You've heard these rumors about Paul. He's not actually doing this. He's not actually telling Jewish Christians they don't have to follow the law. But the wild thing is he could. He could if he wanted to because they're not bound by the law. But Paul is just as concerned with church unity as the leaders in Jerusalem are. And so he's actually been honoring these things for the sake of the whole church family. And so they come up with a plan. They go, okay, here's the deal. Here's what we're going to do. Take some of the money you brought. This point where Paul brought a collection with him for the impoverished of the church in Jerusalem. He said, take some of this money. We have some guys that took a religious vow. We want you to go with them. Finish out the vow. Donate some money to the coffers of the temple. And this will show everyone you are law observant and the rumors are just rumors. So there's this thing in the ancient Jewish world, kind of based on what the scripture teaches about the Nazarite vow, where folk could set, the, it's a kind, of like, kind of like how we consider fasting. Folk could take a vow for a period of time where they set themselves apart as kind of holy, they fast from certain things like cutting their hair and drinking alcohol and doing certain things just to give themselves more time for prayer and meditation. And at the end of that time, They would go to the temple, make a donation to the benevolence fund, and ceremonially cut their hair. It's kind of a religious thing that was done in the temple that day. And so there were several of these guys doing this in the church of Jerusalem at that time. And so James says, Paul, go with them and participate in this. It's very public. The people at the temple will see you. And it will just put these rumors to bed and we can move on in unity. Which I love that, by the way. I love it for a couple of reasons. And I don't want to stick here because this isn't really, I think, 
what God has for us in this text, but I do think it's important. What I love here is that Paul didn't show up at Jerusalem like guns loaded, ready to blast these guys for their legalism. You know what I'm saying? Paul knew about the rumors that were going around about him. He knew with the tension that exists for him in the church. And he could have walked in and been like, you guys are legalistic jerks, assuming the worst of me. I'm out there busting my butt, preaching the gospel, planting churches, while you guys are sitting here in Jerusalem getting mad at me about stuff I'm not actually doing. He didn't do that. He showed up and joyfully shared the testimony of what God was doing. And then when the leader shared with him the tension, he joyfully submitted to it. To love and serve the church. It's pretty intense. What I love about that too is the leaders in the Jerusalem church didn't assume the rumors were true. They welcomed Paul joyfully. Said, share the testimony. Tell us what's going on. And once they shared, catch this, they believed him. They didn't go, well, Paul, you say this, but we've heard this. Which one's true? They let Paul speak and they said, amazing. That's so beautiful. Now let's come up with a plan to get past some of this gossip that's been going around. I love that change. I love that, that, that all of them, through the leading of the Spirit, were, were, were deeply concerned with unity, with joy, with assuming the best in one another. And what we see is that as Paul bears witness to what God is doing in the world to his brothers and sisters, the result is deeper, deeper maturity, deeper unity, growth, joy in the Spirit. This scene ends with Paul walking in unity and joy with the church. How cool is that? Who is that? He bears witness to what God is doing amongst brothers and sisters. And what happens is God is glorified, the church is unified, and things go well. Amazing, right? When you actually like represent Christ well and assume the best of one another, that things can be joyful. The scene moves on from here. Paul buys into this plan. They take the money. They go with the guys to the temple. And they're participating in this ceremony publicly. And it's pretty beautiful. It's kind, of, it's kind of doing what it needs to do. It's squelching the rumors. But then some Jews from the area around Ephesus, what we call Turkey, some, some guys who, if you remember a few stories back, were, I don't know, raising up riots and trying to kill Paul, uh, see him there and recognize him. And they go, you know, let's do that thing we always do. We raise up riots and try and kill Paul. Uh, and so they start shouting and working up the crowd and saying, that's the guy we've been telling you about. That's the riot guy. We need to kill him. He's a, he's a blasphemer. He's, he's, he's forsaking the law of Moses. And he brings Gentiles into the temple, which he wasn't doing. But they're saying these things about him. And it whips the room, it whips the temple into such a frenzy so quickly that the religious leaders have to put the temple on an emergency lockdown. I mean, straight up, they're like, temple's closed. Close all the doors, lock all the windows, kick everyone out. We're not dealing with this mess. In a city like Jerusalem, everything's pretty much bent around the temple, right? Like, when the temple shuts down, everyone notices. This riot drags Paul outside and begins killing him in the street. And I know that's a dramatic way to say it, but you need to hear it that way. Their goal, very explicitly, was to kill Paul. So they drag him out in the street and begin beating him to death with their hands and feet. And again, I know that's intense, but I need us to be in this story for a minute because this paints the rest of where we're going today. I need you to imagine what actually needs to be done what a human being actually needs to do to beat another human being to death with their hands and feet. That's, that's what's happening to Paul in the middle of the street in Jerusalem outside the temple gates right now. And these are his, his brothers and sisters, like his fellow Jews. Like, and remember like Paul's history, right? Like, he, used to, he used to be a temple leader here. He served on the Sanhedrin. He was trained under Gamaliel, one of the most famous Pharisaical rabbis of the day. Like, these are people who almost certainly knew who Paul was. And they are beating him to death in the street. And the only thing that saves him is when the police show up. This thing is so intense, the word gets back to the, the Roman soldier who's in charge of the soldiers on duty that day. 
And he knows a riot when he sees one. And, and he knows that this is the kind of riot that can turn from beating one guy to death in the streets into thousands of people dying and buildings burning down. And so he musters all the troops and they march in there quickly and they drag these people off of Paul as he's being killed and then arrest him. Because the assumption is that if he's getting beaten to death in the street, probably deserves it, right? Like he probably did something. So go ahead and arrest him. Let me read this part for him. This is starting in verse 31. If they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered that he be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. He could not learn the facts because of the uproar, so he ordered that Paul be brought back into the barracks. This is an insane scene, right? And, and where it basically goes from here is they take him into the barracks, they arrest him, and the guy's like, this must be that Egyptian terrorist we've heard about. Let's whip him with, like, floggers. And Paul's like, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, really quick, you can't do that. Uh, and they're like, oh shoot, we can't. And they have a conversation that ends out, and it's going to go to court the next day. And that's really where the narrative goes, right? We see Paul with the church in Jerusalem, Paul with the Jews in Jerusalem, and this last scene, Paul with the Romans. And really, the, the Paul with the Romans is kind of setting up what will happen in the next couple weeks as he works his way through the legal system in Jerusalem and then for Judea. So, so what I really want to focus on is this transition moment. Because what happens is, the riot's going on, they're beating him to death, the soldiers come in, grab him, bind him with chains, arrest him, and they're dragging, they're in the act of dragging him into the barracks. And Paul goes, hey, hey, really quick, before you take me in there, can I talk to them real quick? Can I talk to the crowd? And the Roman soldier's like, yeah, sure, why not? Which is just wild to me. Like, that is the part of the story that makes the least amount of sense. But it's exactly what happens. Soldier's like, yeah, sure, yeah, talk to him. We'll see what happens. I'll, bet, I'll give you a platform. Stand up here so they can all hear you. And Paul shares this. He shares, well, the first of four narratives in this last section of Acts, Paul's going to share his testimony in four different contexts. We're going to see this over and over and over. Paul sharing essentially the same story, how I came to know Christ, in a different context. Right now, he's sharing it for a group of murderous, violent Jews who want him dead. And we're going to see him share that in different contexts as Acts goes on. But I'm actually going to read this chunk of text in its entirety. I think it's going to point out something that we actually need for today. So he, he, he gets the crowd's attention and starting, this is verse 3 of chapter 22, he says this. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but I was brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And so I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hands of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him that everyone and who you see, what you have seen and what you have heard. Now, why do you wait? Rise up, be baptized, wash away your sins, and call upon his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because those they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in me. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. 
And he said to me, go, for I'm about to send you far away to the Gentiles. And at this point, they stop listening to him and start screaming and shouting to have him killed again. Like, get away from us, you don't deserve to be alive. And that's when they drag him aside and the story goes on. Paul basically gives his testimony here. And most of us have probably heard at least some form of the story of Paul, right? Like, this was the dude who was one of the chief persecutors of the church early on. He was high up in Jewish leadership, and he had a deep hatred for Christianity. He saw it as heresy. He saw it as blasphemy. He worked hard to kill Christians. He was part of the group that, that killed one of the first deacons, Stephen, right? Like, he literally got permission from the leaders to go town to town, beating up, arresting, imprisoning, punishing, killing Christians. And he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, it changed everything about his life. It's very hard to call the Son of God a sham, to call him a liar when he appears to you and starts talking. It's very hard to call the whole thing made up when Christ, the resurrected Christ, comes and has a conversation with you. And that's what happens to He meets Jesus. There's a conversation with Jesus. Jesus talks to him, shares with him his life, his purpose for him, and Paul's life entirely changes in that moment. He goes from being the persecutor of the church to one of the chief advocates of God's church. Traveling around the world, planting churches, writing a massive chunk of our New Testament and the letters that he wrote back and forth with those churches, right? God does this amazing thing in Paul's life. Now we're going to hear this story several more times as we finish out Acts. But I want, to, I want to look at one specific piece today, and this is how I think this will be beneficial for us as we look at all these. I want to look at what sets this telling of this story apart from the other tellings. And the reason is this. We see Paul contextualizing the message here. Remember, this is Paul who literally seconds prior was being beaten to death. This is Paul covered in blood with a broken nose, missing teeth, with head trauma, and likely making his way joyfully into shock with his hands tied behind his back with chains, standing on the stairs, speaking to the group that literally seconds prior was actively murdering. And this is what he chooses to share with them. And he shares something specific here that he doesn't share usually when he shares his testimony. He tells them what Ananias told him on the day he received his sight. Saul, God has called you to something special. He has made his will known to you. You have seen him, you have heard his voice, and you are going to be his witness. So go. This is exactly what Paul did with his life. He took that to heart. I am to bear witness of what I have seen and what I have heard. I am to take the name of Christ with me wherever I go. And so he did. He traveled all over the world. I and mean, that's what we saw in this text. He bears witness to Christ to the church in Jerusalem. Then he bears witness to Christ to the Jews of Jerusalem. Then he bears witness to Christ to the Romans of Jerusalem. Like, this is what Paul does. This is the life of Paul. And by the way, this is the whole point of the book of Acts. If you step back to Acts chapter 1, the last words that Jesus says to his followers before he ascends into heaven is, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's easy for us to miss a phrase like this, because we just don't really talk this way nowadays. But the people of God bearing witness to the person and works of God is absolutely the core message of the book of Acts. Bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus, that is, his person and his work on our behalf. So his person, he is God. His work that he died and resurrected and rose again and one day will return to forgive us from sin and take us into eternity. His person and his work. Bearing witness to this is what Acts is all about. And beloved, bearing witness to this is what the Christian life is all about. This is what we are called to. But if such is the case, what does it actually mean to bear witness? What do we mean by that term? It's a legal term. You know, think of the differing parties in a legal procedure calling witnesses up to the stand, right? To bear witness means something very specific, and I believe this is really important for us today as we seek to follow Jesus. A witness is a piece of evidence. You know, when someone bears witness, their very person 
becomes part of the evidence for or against whatever claim is being discussed. In court, there can be material evidence, right? You can bring up the bloody knife or the glove that doesn't fit. Stuff that points... That was a really old cultural reference. That was great. You can have material evidence, stuff that points one way or the other. But a witness, a witness is living, breathing evidence. Their person is the evidence. Paul hated Jesus. He hated him. He saw him as destroying his way of life. That, that anger came out of him in, in structured violence as he sought to do harm to those who followed Jesus. He hated his followers. He dedicated his life to persecuting them, hurting them, arresting them, killing him. And then he met Jesus. This same Paul met the Jesus he hated. Let me say that again. Paul met the resurrected Jesus. They spoke. They got to know each other. And Paul's life was changed. His sins were forgiven. He was brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. So Paul is evidence that the person of Jesus is God. And the work of Jesus, that he died and forgave our sins and rose again, it's evidence that those things are true. Paul is the evidence. His life, his change, his story. It shows that Jesus is who he says he is. You look at the claim of Christ, this rabbi who walked around in Palestine 2,000 years ago was actually God, and his life was actually perfect, and his perfect life and unjust death makes a way for God to put your sin on him so that you can be found righteous and given eternal life. Big claims! Wild, supernatural claims! What's the evidence? Well, the evidence is the life of a guy like Paul. The life of a guy like Peter. The life of a woman like Perpetua. You can go down the list. They are the evidence. You know, once the Corinthian church was doubting Paul's authority and his teaching, they were hearing from all different teachers, and they were like, hey, maybe Paul's a heretic. And so they're writing letters to him back and forth, and Paul basically says to him, you want evidence that I preach the real gospel? Church, look in the mirror. You're all saved. I came there and preached, and you're in Christ. I'm pretty sure it's the real gospel. You read that, 2 Corinthians 3. It's an amazing piece. It points to exactly what we're talking about. Lives changed by the gospel are the evidence of the gospel. It's why we're called to bear witness. Because you, church, you are the evidence that the gospel is real and that Jesus is saving lost souls. Because you were once lost. And that is a fact. Because you were once given over to sin, pursuing the things of this flesh, pursuing the pleasures of this world. And now you are increasing in freedom and growing in holiness. You were once completely given over to the pursuits of here and now in this life, but now, now you are chasing after Jesus, chasing after his kingdom. You once were stuck in the here and now, but now you live with eternity in mind. Beloved, you are the the evidence. The very essence of the Christian life is to bear witness to Jesus. The living evidence of the reality of the gospel is living and breathing and sitting in this room. So how can the world trust the invitation of the gospel? Like my friend, many have genuinely considered the invitation of Jesus. They've listened to the claims. They've shown up in churches or youth groups. They might even study apologetics and go and read Lee Strobel and William Lane Craig. But guys... The ask of Christianity is still a really big ask. It still demands a lot of your life. So how can they know? How can they know? Really know that this Christ is who he says he is? The answer, beloved of Jesus, is you. It's you. You are the witness. You are the missionary. You are the proof that Jesus is real. In his revelation, John was given a picture of the end of days, the final return of Jesus, and he gives us this unique insight into this reality that we're talking about. 
the promise of the gospel isn't just the cross, the resurrection, forgiveness of sin. It's also the ascension of Christ, his eventual return, right? One day Jesus will return in victory, and all that remains of sin, suffering, death, the curse, Satan himself, will be eternally destroyed, right? All that will remain is what is holy and good. We will be perfected and we'll continue on with our creator, the lover of our souls forever. John got, got a sneak preview of this, right? In Revelation 12, as he's describing the final battle, the final moments when the resurrected, victorious Jesus is finally permanently destroying all of sin and all of the curse, and Satan himself, when the dragon Satan is being cast into the fire and eternally destroyed, Revelation 12 says this, And they, they being us, Christ and the church, have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. What is it that conquers Satan? Oh, beloved, it's Jesus. It's his work. It's the blood of the Lamb. Christ lived a perfect life and died an unjust death and rose again by the power of God to ascend into eternity. It's Christ's work, Christ's accomplished work that is victory over sin and over death and over Satan. But in his, in his perfection, part of God's plan for the destruction of sin, the destruction of everything that is evil, is that the power and work of Jesus will be witnessed and testified by his church. There is something about the word of their testimony. There here is the church. Beloved, this is you, your testimony, your story, your witness. This is a part of Jesus' final victory over Satan, over the curse, over death. This is God's plan for the final defeat that your life will be evidence, that your testimony, that you would bear witness to the power and truth of who God is. Come on. I'm going to end this with just a couple ideas here. I think this is a good landing place for us. I want us to think about a stuff. transition to doing something really, really fun. The first question I think it's worth us asking today is simply this. Are you bearing witness? It's a yes or no question, right? Is your life actually evidence of the truth of the gospel? If the answer is no, I would ask you to take a few minutes and consider two possibilities. First, you might not actually be in Christ. You might not have actually responded to Jesus in real confession and repentance to actually receive the fruit of his work on your behalf. If you're here and you've never found life in Jesus, I mean, I, you know, I would ask you to genuinely consider his offer to you. That he loves you. And he will not cease to love you. It does not matter what you've done or what you haven't done. It doesn't matter what you will do. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more unless he loves you heard it said that Jesus already has your picture in his world. It's crazy about Jesus. And if you haven't received his gift, forgiveness, and love, and salvation, that is available to you here and today. I'd love to talk to you about it. Any of our pastors would love to talk to you about it. But second, if you sit here and go, no, I know I'm in Christ, but I still really don't think I'm bearing witness. Now I'd ask you to consider, are you stagnant in your faith? You know, Jesus talked about the, the, the seed of the gospel being spread into the world and the, in, the, in, in different ways the human heart engages it. Are you choked out? Are you choked out by the sufferings and pleasures of this world so much so that you can't actually bear witness to the truth? Some of you need to come to Jesus afresh in repentance. You're trapped in some kind of sin. You're coming back to habitual patterns over and over and over. And it's taking up so much of your mental energy, so much of your spiritual energy. You can't, you don't have time or margin to bear witness to Christ. Because you're spending all your mental energy going in circles of guilt and shame and confession and repentance and guilt and shame. And some of you, if we're being honest, you love Jesus and you believe the gospel is true, but you also just really love the stuff in this world. <laughs> You're not bearing witness because, like me, 
love to spend all your time and energy and attention watching TV and eating junk food and hanging out with friends. Amen. And the pleasures of this world are choking out the effectiveness of your witness. Beloved, if you're here today and you know you're in Christ, but you don't believe you're bearing witness, I would encourage you to consider that you need to come to Him afresh in repentance. You need to come to Him and ask for freedom. To reject the ways of this world. And if you're trapped in something and just can't, just can't dig your way out, bring that junk to the light. Share that with one of our pastors, one of our deacons. We will walk in that with you. There's no judgment, no shame. We want to see you walk in joy and freedom in Christ. We want to see you join in the chorus of the church, bearing witness to the power of the gospel. And maybe, this is my last thing, maybe you know you're in Christ. And maybe you believe the power of the gospel. And you think about the testimony that you would proclaim, and you're just like, oh no, mine's just really boring. Like, I didn't have my dealing drugs to toddlers phase. <laughs> That's usually how we share testimonies in church, right? I was, I was selling crack cocaine-laced cookies to three-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you're like, I just grew up in church and like, I don't know, I believe the gospel and I've never sold drugs. I just like Jesus and my family. My story's too boring to be a part of this. Beloved, let me challenge you. Your story is the living God of the universe came down to earth and sacrificed himself and poured himself out to take on your sin. That he absorbed everything evil and wrong in you and gave you his righteousness. He raised you from death to life. He drew you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And in his mercy, he protected you and kept you from darker things. Beloved, you have an eternally powerful story. Your testimony is the power of God for salvation. Your testimony is that Jesus raises the dead and forgives sins. Your testimony is part of what God will use to crush Satan. In the Your story is not boring. It's the power of God. So, i got to be done. I'm over on time. It's a good question. Are you bearing witness? Are you bearing witness? Are you part of the evidence? that shows the truth of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Beloved, I would encourage you to consider that today. We're about to sit with a brother who's going to bear witness to us, to the reality of Christ, the reality of the gospel. And then we're going to come together and we're going to partake in communion. We're going to do this tactile thing where we, through eating and drinking, proclaim the sufficiency of Christ until his return. It's a perfect time for you to sit with the Spirit for just a few minutes and go, Christ, do I actually bear witness to you? And see what he tells you. Think through those questions. See what the Spirit convicts you of. Christ, am I actually in you? Christ, do I love this world too much to represent you? Christ, am I returning to the same empty wells of sin over and over and not actually walking in freedom again? Christ, am I ignoring your story because I'm making it more about me and less about you? See what he says. And then, let's all get the heck out of here and bear witness about Christ to the world that needs him. Amen? Pray with me. Jim's going to come up. Jesus, you are so good. You are so good. Jesus, thank you for your work on our behalf. Thank you for the reality of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you can use sinful, broken us, that you can use men like me. With all my weakness, with all my love of the flesh, the love of this world, you can use me as part of your kingdom. Lord, we want, we want to be your children who join in the work of bearing witness, of, of being the stack of evidence that shows you are who you are to an unbelieving world and desperate need. God, your gospel is so good. Shout that afresh in our hearts. Renew that evidence in our own hearts. Bring us to that joy and that life. And then, Lord, let us go from this place. <coughs> full. So full of you that you are overflowing out of us into the world around us. We love you, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen.
morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Jim Donahue, and I am one of the pastors of Emmanuel uh, Fellowship Church, and I want to welcome <clears throat> all the family and friends of uh, Steve Patterson here. We're glad you're here for this special day in their lives. I'm going to close our gathering this morning by observing two special sacraments of the church, baptism and communion. Baptism and communion were given by Christ as acts of obedience that believers are to perform as a means of worship in response to God's amazing grace. Both point to the saving work of Christ, the incarnated God in human flesh, who lived a perfect sinless life, suffered, died on the cross, and carried. When the third day rose from the dead, proving that he was God, and proving that he had the power and the victory over sin and death for everyone who believes. Both communion and baptism have been pillars of the Christian faith since the beginning of the New Testament church. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18-19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The word for baptize in the Greek is baptizo, which means to dip, plunge, submerge, or immerse. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which symbolizes the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, and the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. When a believer in Christ chooses to be baptized, they reveal their willingness to publicly humble themselves in this way so as to honor God as the Lord of their life. We clearly see this step of obedience in the lives of believers all the way back to the days of the first church, for in Acts 2.42, Luke wrote that those who received the gospel were baptized. It's important to note that baptism is not needed for salvation, for the scriptures are clear that salvation is by faith alone in Christ. Baptism is a symbol of that faith. It's an outward expression of an inward faith in Jesus. And that's what Steve is going to tell us about this morning. So Steve, you want to come on up and uh, give us your story. Bear with me a little bit. I'm having an issue with um, health. The first thing I want to say, I've always been a believer. The early memories of my life, I remember Baptist Church, regular attendance, um, Sunday school, vacation Bible school, all those kind of things. My maternal grandfather was a was a scholar who taught Greek and Hebrew in the seminary. I remember as a young child visiting my grandparents. He would read Hebrew scripture or something like that. Didn't fully understand it, but I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> and changing life circumstances kind of led me away from regular church attendance. Chance um, conversation with my neighbor Anthony Pecoraro. I was talking about the church. Yeah, he was invited to attend a might be kind of cool. So he invited us. For some reason, I said immediately, yeah, something told me I needed to pursue this. So we did it. Church group a few weeks ago, Jim asked us to volunteer to share our faith journey. And when I went through that, one of the members asked me, well, when did you remember being saved? You know, you were in church as a young boy. I didn't have an answer for that. And Jim kind of picked up on that. And came out to the house and basically prayed for my salvation. And I was saved. And a huge weight was the that's kind of how I got here today. <laughs> now you'll notice that um, we don't have a baptismal public here like we usually do because we do believe in baptism by immersion uh, which is indicated in throughout the New Testament. 
But since my brother here has been suffering with Parkinson's, um, he is not an able, he wouldn't be able to get in and out of the tub. So what we believe about our, our Savior and our Lord is that uh, he's not so concerned with the method as the person's heart. And he looks down on from heaven and he sees this man's heart and his desire to proclaim publicly of his faith in Jesus. And baptism, my points of water over his head, is just as good. Vicki, why don't you come on out? She's been praying for this guy's salvation for a lot of years, and uh, it was just pretty awesome to be with them that, that evening and sit at the kitchen table, and we're all crying when we pray to receive Christ. So, Steve, I want to ask you a couple questions. Steve, do you believe that Jesus is God? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Steve, have you confessed your sins to Jesus? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus um, rose from the dead and conquered sin and death for you? Yes. Have you made a decision to place your faith and trust in Jesus and to follow him as your Lord? Yes. Well, based on that profession of faith, brother, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Brother, stand up now in your newness of life in Christ. sat down, raise your hand, and they're going to uh, pass it on to this point. So as I said, um, these are the two sacraments, both baptism and, and communion, that the Lord instituted, and they really point to the gospel, they point to the cross and what Jesus did and what he accomplished on the cross for us. So I'm going to just walk you through really quickly the verses that I shared with Steve that allowed him to understand that what he knew about Jesus in, in his head that he transferred and believed by faith in his heart. In order to understand the good news, you've got to first get to the bad news. And scriptures are clear about the bad news. In Romans 3.23 it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God which means that we all are stained by sin. And God in His holy perfection and heaven being a holy and perfect place, that sin is a barrier between us and God. We cannot, we miss the mark of God's perfect holiness. We need another's righteousness in that place. Romans 6, 23 says that the wages of that sin, the consequences of that sin is death. And you see, we were never supposed to die. If you look in the book of Genesis, we we're supposed to live forever, but because of their rebellion, their sin, their disobedience, the curse came into the world, and so did disease and decay and death. But that death also means it's an alienation from God, a spiritual death, that we're separated from God. But the latter part of that verse says, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus made a way. He made a way. Every other religion in the world who has God as its focus, will tell you that you have to work up a mountain and earn your way to God. Through your good works, being religious, being baptized, going through confirmation, whatever it is, that you're to work your way there, and every religion has a different set of rules and regulations. But Christianity alone says that God came down that mountain on a rescue mission for you and I. That Jesus came in human flesh for the purpose of dying on the cross for your sins and rising from the dead on that third day, proving that he was God and proving that he had victory over sin and death for you. Steve made that decision about a week and a half ago. He believed that he was a sinner in need of God's grace. John 1.12 says, To all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives them the right to become children of God. 
And then in 1 John 5, 11 through 13, John writes, God has given us a testimony, and the testimony is this. He who believes in the Son of God has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This life was never meant to be a crapshoot at the end, wondering, well, did I, was I good enough to make the grade when I stand before God or not? Right there it says in the scriptures that you can know that you have eternal life. Steve knows that he has eternal life because he's placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you've never made that decision, I want to encourage you to make that decision this morning. You'll never work the sin that you have in your life off of you by your good works and trying to be religious or good. It's not about cleaning yourself up first. It's not about getting your act together. It's not about coming to church or jumping through a bunch of religious hoops. It's solely based on where you stand with Jesus. Have you placed your faith and trust in Him as your Savior? So now as we're taking communion, for those of you who have placed your faith and trust in Christ, I want you to just take a few moments to praise Him, to worship Him, and thank Him for what He did on the cross. If you're here this morning and you've never made that decision, now is your time where you can talk that over with God. In the quietness of you and Him alone here and say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. Forgive me for my sins. Come to my life. And He will do just that. So take a few moments to yourself and quiet. When you're ready, go ahead and take the elements. Then we're going to close in a song.